Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday to you. I hope your day is going well so far. This week, so my boyfriend's cat, his name is Marshall, and Marshall does this weird thing where he'll stare at a corner, then he'll like bend his head backwards and like spin it around, and then he'll almost fall backwards and then he'll catch himself and then he'll just walk away like nothing happened. <sighs> Marshall. <laughs> so that's my update for the week. Um, oh, there he is right now. Other than Marshall doing weird things, weird cat things, um, school is winding down, which is nice because there's less assignments, but that means finals are coming up. <sighs> Boy, finals. In terms of scandals I've seen in the news recently, I've seen a lot of articles about Boris Johnson and the Partygate scandal, and essentially my understanding of that is Boris Johnson held a a party with different political members and it violated laws that were in place at the time with COVID restrictions, and so it's come out that he definitely broke the law and it's just seeming like it's getting worse and worse for him. We shall see what happens with that. That is the main scandal I've seen in the news recently. This topic I just want to say before going in. It involves child abuse, rape, sexual assault, murder, and other topics such as that. And I don't go into graphic detail with the sexual assault and rape stuff, but there are some mentions of children abusing each other that could be upsetting for some people, but it's important to the story. So I'm only going to give as many details as necessary to uh, convey what was happening. So just know that going in, there are some real touchy topics throughout this episode, but what happened is really awful, and so it needs to be talked about. Okay, so with that, uh, these are the sources that I used for this episode. I used... And all that's interesting article by Kay Fraga, published this year, 2022. An article by Robert F. Kennedy for The Atlantic, published in 2003. A podcast by Kay Lowe called Dark Down East Maine True Crime Podcast. An article from The Sun Journal by Jay Meyer in 2011. A Really, really incredible blog article by S. Nathy titled Suffer the Little Children, a Lawn School in the Industry of Legalized Child Abuse. A really good documentary by Nexpo on YouTube called The Cult in a Boarding School. Another Sun Journal article by K. Skelton and L. Tice published in 2016. And then lastly, a Wikipedia page about this whole thing. And with that, that leads us into this episode, which I've titled Expensive Abuse, The Alon School. 
The Elan School was founded in 1970 by Dr. Gerald Davidson, who was a child psychiatrist, and Joe Ritchie, who was a former heroin addict who had experience working in drug treatment facilities. Learning more about these two men, but mainly about Joe Ritchie, he was born in 1945 in Port Chester, New York. He was raised by his grandparents after custody was signed over to them by his mother, and in his preteen years and his teenage years, he started to get into a lot of trouble as well as using drugs. There were other signs that pointed to Joe Ritchie potentially having a kind of difficult and negative path was he had almost a debilitating desire for money. Obviously, everyone wants money. It's nice to have, but he had it to where it was almost almost an issue for him. It's reported widely that when he was 12, he entered into a relationship with his teacher, but in my opinion, a 12-year-old can't be in a relationship with an adult, so my opinion on that is he was assaulted or molested by his teacher, and there was a sexual relationship there. No matter how consensual you think the 12-year-old was, he was a 12-year-old, so it's reported like that, and it, it I think it's used to speak to his character, and he is not a good person in any way, but I think we also need to realize the fact that he was 12, so he probably didn't have a lot of say in the relationship, but there were sexual relations happening with his teacher when he was 12. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. So despite that unfortunate reality, he also did not-so-great things such as bullying younger kids, vandalism, stealing just for the fun of it, breaking into cars, and all other exciting fun things like that. There are different reports of when he started using drugs, like about what age, but it's widely reported that he was in a car accident when he was 15 years old, and when he was recovering in the hospital, he became addicted to painkillers. He was eventually arrested at 18 years old for breaking into a mail carrier, like a mail truck, and he was taken into custody by police, but he went to a rehab center instead of going to jail, and it was there that he learned what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to open up his own rehabilitation center, and he wanted to become successful in the field of drug rehabilitation. Some more about Joe. Before the start of Elan School, Joe, he had run a smaller drug rehabilitation center called Survival Inc., which made him a small fortune. He also became heavily involved down at the racetracks, where he earned millions of dollars from betting on horse racing. He eventually uh, came to own his own racetrack, where employees described him as abusive, and he was sued three times for sexual harassment and death threats from three female employees. So, not a great person at all. It was also rumored that he had connections to organized crime and the mysterious underworld. This has never really been conclusively proven. However, it was prominent enough to where the FBI gained attention of this and were investigating him. At one point, the FBI publicly accused him of having ties with the mafia. So in response, Joe sued them. 
and Joe won $15 million from this defamation suit against the FBI. So (laughs) Joe, he is quite the character, and he's also rich, 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 rich. Dr. Gerald Davidson, the other person who was going to help found this school, he was a child psychiatrist who was working for Massachusetts General Hospital as well as a lecturer at Harvard University, so he's also just a very smart individual. He specialized in behavior modification programs. So those are the two main characters that start this school. Joe Ritchie is kind of the one that gets the most attention, and rightfully so. But another thing that is important to understand this story is the time in history that it was taking place. The school was founded in 1970, which is a new decade, and what happened in the 1960s were were many things, but one big thing that took place and one thing that was worrying parents Um, across the United States was the rise of hippie culture and counterculture and the movements like that. There were large protests against the Vietnam War from the younger generation. The civil rights movement had been taking place. Sexuality was becoming more mainstream. And for older generations, this was likely something that was scary, new, and that they disfavored. For right or wrong reasons, it was likely that parents were against this. In response to the counterculture movement and in order to try and keep order or to keep things the way things had been and how the parents thought they should be, many parents thought that it was probably best that their kids didn't take part in what was happening. And parenting, at the end of the day, you can only do so much, especially if the child is starting to take place in new areas that the parents aren't familiar with, if the parents can't really get control of their kid, if the kid starts using drugs, going to protests, or committing crimes. So this kind of of out-of-control behavior from children, as well as the fear from parents, led to something commonly known as tough love. Tough love, it has many definitions, but a boiled down definition is it's basically where you treat someone harshly to benefit them in the long run. Tough love was popular at the time with kids who were acting out, whether it was true that they were acting out, like if they were committing crimes or doing drugs, or if the kids were acting out in ways that the parents just didn't see fit. So when the parents couldn't handle it anymore, When the parents were overwhelmed, the parents had to turn to somebody else because whatever they were doing wasn't working, and the people that they turned to were private facilities such as the Elan School. These private facilities such as the Elan School, they became popular during this time, and not only were they becoming popular, but they were really, really expensive. Because they were so expensive, they were a great business opportunity for anyone who could open it up and keep it going. And that is what really seemed to motivate Joe when opening this school. We already talked about how he seemed to have an almost debilitating desire for money, but there was also a former employee of the Elan School that said, quote, Becoming rich was definitely an obsession that seemed to drive Joe. Money was extremely important to him. End quote. 
The school would eventually focus on various groups of kids, such as troubled teens and drug addicts, and Joe thought of this school and it was advertised as a last resort for parents when everything else had failed, when the parenting tactics had failed, when other facilities had failed. The Elan school was like, hey, you're at your last resort, this is the last resort, and we're going to make sure that your kids become well-behaved. The school was going to focus on these difficult kids, these groups of kids, and so because it was a last resort, it was going to have a high cost for families and parents to send their kids there, and it was quite the cost. It cost families $50,000 in admission fees to send their child there. $50,000 in 1970 is 300 is around $365,000 today. Families were spending in today's money over a quarter of a million dollars per child if they had to send multiple children to go to this school. Because this was so expensive, parents were expecting it to work, and for it to work, this school was going to have to do things that weren't done at other schools because the other schools, the other facilities, they hadn't worked. So this school was going to be new, it was going to be different, and it was going to be effective. Alon School opened up in 1970 in Poland, Maine. Poland itself is a small town with just under 6,000 people in the 2020 census, so I can imagine it was smaller back in the 1970s. The school itself was set back in the woods on a 33-acre campus that used to be a hunting lodge. When you look at photos of the place, you would first expect for it to be fancy, built-up, nice facilities because it cost $50,000 in 1970 to send a kid there, but that was not the case. Looking at photos, it kind of looks like what I would describe as a run-down summer camp. There's trailers, different buildings that just kind of look blech, like gross. The buildings themselves, they weren't in great condition. The school grounds itself placed on these 33 acres were set far away from any other civilization. And so how to get there was parents, of course, could send their child there and like either, you know, drive them or fly them there. But if that wasn't going to work, there was another way to get their children there, a more involuntary way. Alon offered something called a teen escort service that would transport students to the school. And when I first heard that, I was like, oh, okay, kind of like a bus or um, like a pickup service where you're like, hey, I live at this address, come pick my child up and take them back. Kind of, but not really. This teen escort service would come to the house to pick the kids up. However, they would come at night while the kid was sleeping. They would then bust into the kid's room and kidnap the child. This was all done with the consent of the parents. What's particularly more concerning is that the, the children, they had no say in attending. The parents essentially just signed over their kid to them, so the element of surprise was important to get kids to go. The process of getting these kids reportedly included, quote, Two men breaking into the teen's bedroom, physically subduing them, tying them up with plastic handcuffs, throwing them into a van, and then driving them to Poland, Maine, where they'd be handed over to the Elan school. End quote. 
This was, of course, terrifying because if you're the child and you don't know what's going on, you are just woken up in the middle of the night with two strange men breaking into your room, throwing you into a van and driving you a long way, and you are eventually driven to a place set back in the woods on 33 acres. There were kids who went through this uh, teen escort service who described that they thought they were being kidnapped for ransom, that they were going to be taken off and murdered. Um, some of the girls who went to the school thought that they were going to be kidnapped to be raped or sexually assaulted. And the group of students that this school serviced was ages 12 to 18. No matter how old you are, I think it would be terrifying for anybody to wake up in the middle of the night to your door being bust down and essentially being kidnapped and taken far, far away. Once the kids actually got to the school, they quickly realized that it wasn't going to be like anything they had experienced before. They came up upon the somewhat depressing looking grounds after the frightful experience of being kidnapped and this whole experience getting there seeing what it was like it motivated a lot of kids to try and run away unfortunately escape wasn't going to be possible first and foremost this ground this campsite it was on 33 acres of land isolated from nearby civilization more importantly there were guards that waited in the woods around a lawn school waiting to capture anyone who tried to escape and yes the guards were not afraid to get violent joe said that quote at a lawn the first thing you learn is that you're not going to get out of here no matter how many times you run away we will go and get you end quote once the students were actually inside of the school buildings, students were forced to shower where they had no privacy. They then had to give basically everything they had on them, their clothing, any belongings to the staff, and in return, they would get, quote, no image, end quote, clothing. Basically bland, colorless clothing. And to me, that kind of sounds like prison clothing, except just not bright orange. In some pictures, it was just kind of like a dark gray, gross-looking color. Just everyone was wearing the exact same thing. All of their personality was taken away. There was no individuality. They were all the same. After this horrific experience of having to shower with no privacy and being stripped of your individuality, the kids were taken into a new area where, there would be, where they would be assigned someone called a big brother. This big brother, it was said to be someone who would help the new student adjust to life on campus, but that was far from the truth. Instead of being helpful, the big brothers would often play pranks on the new students and try to get them to break the rules or to convince them to try and run away. And when the big brothers did convince the new students to try and run away, the big brothers would then report it so the new student would get caught and would be punished. The big brother and the new student relationship unfortunately wasn't the only social hierarchy classes at the school. The students were separated into two different groups called strengths and non-strengths. Strengths, they were obedient students, they were allowed to talk to other strengths and non-strengths. The non-strengths were usually new students and they were not allowed to talk to other non-strengths. There was punishment. 
if the non-strengths talked to other non-strengths. Being founded in the 1970s, there was obviously no cell phones, so you may be asking yourself, well, why didn't they just call home? They didn't. And even if they had them, they would have been taken away as soon as they got to the school. But that's okay, though. There were still phones. They could have written letters, right? Wrong. Students at the Elan School were cut off from the outside world. They were isolated location-wise and communication-wise. Students were forced to write a guilt letter to their families explaining why they deserved to be in a, at Elan and explaining how the school was helping them. These letters were carefully looked over by the staff, and often students had to write multiple versions before one could be sent home and it met all of their requirements. When students earned the privilege to call home, calls were monitored on a switchboard, there were staff members listening in, and students were given a short time to call home. If a student tried to say anything out of line, basically off script, or anything bad about the Elan school, the call would be disconnected and the students would be punished. Punishment was important and punishment would come after breaking a bunch of rules, but we haven't talked about what the rules were. The rules themselves, they were called guilt, and here was a list of rules that were reportedly in place. Talking too quietly, talking too loudly, talking to someone without authorization, talking to a non-strength while being a non-strength, talking too much, not talking enough, talking about subjects not Elan-related, Sex, and this included more than just sex, it involved possibly looking at someone of the opposite gender. Looking at someone of the opposite sex was its own separate rule. Deliberately avoiding looking at someone of the opposite sex. Being attracted to someone. Looking outside. Looking at the floor. Having negative body language. Reacting to insults. Slouching or yawning. Being sideways. What does that mean? Who knows? Reading or writing, drawing, not falling asleep, sleeping for too long, laughing at a joke made by someone of a higher rank, doing poorly on academics, feeling tired, speaking without permission, eating after designated mealtimes, not eating at all, going outside without permission, rolling your eyes, attempting to run away, swearing without permission, smiling without permission, not smiling enough, making any sort of physical contact, even shaking hands, wearing clothes with image, having bad thoughts, or showing or voicing any dissent. Obviously, those rules were in place to set students up to fail because a lot of the rules contradicted each other. You can't smile too much, but you also have to smile enough. So, you know, where's that middle ground? All these rules were set up to make students fail, and that's exactly what they did. There were students appointed known as expediters who were appointed by the school who would stand around with clipboards and try to see if anyone broke the rules. However, the expediters were required to fill out their sheets, and if the expediters didn't fill out enough sheets, if they didn't find enough rule violations, the expediters would then be punished. So, of course, the expediters had the motivation to flag every single rule violation they saw or just make them up. This whole system, there are administrators, there are adults, but it's essentially just kids managing kids, kids bossing around kids, and they're all like 12 to 18 years old, minus the adults. So this this system, it was set up to be 
abusive. Going along with that, we've talked a lot about punishment, the rules, what leads to punishment, but we haven't actually talked about what the punishments were. I'm sure you can imagine, based on everything that I've told you, the punishments were going to be quite severe, and they were. There's one example where three Alon students were forced to live in a dumpster for more than two weeks, and yes, the dumpster was being used as a dumpster, trash and all. There was an expediter who was forced to watch the students in the dumpster, and if the people in the dumpster, if they broke rules, if they disobeyed, the expediter would then have to go live in the dumpster with the students, and then another expediter would come to watch those students. Another type of punishment at Elan was humiliation. Students who tried to escape and tried to run away, they were known as split risks, and their punishments were having their shoelaces taken away, having to wear a bright yellow shirt and short shorts. One student was even forced to wear a bright pink rabbit suit and had his legs cuffed together at the ankles so he couldn't run away. Other punishments for things like smiling too much involved intensive cleaning for hours on end, cleaning toilets with toothbrushes, doing different menial tasks like that. The students, they had to work at this place called Shotdown, and when they were working there, they often had to get the approval of six or more superiors to go use the restroom. You guessed it, an escort had to watch the student while they used the bathroom. Unfortunately, those punishments are nothing compared to the more intensive kinds of punishments that could be given out and were often given out to students. If a staff member was made mad by a student, it resulted in something called a general meeting. When a general meeting would take place, everyone who lived in a house or who was in the building at the time would get together in front of the student who was being punished where the meeting was being called for. Students would then line up in front of the student and shout at the student one at a time. The students would mock the student, degrade them, insult them, scream at them, horrible things like that. And I just want to reemphasize that these are teenagers doing this, the oldest usually being 18 years old. This abuse, this verbal abuse to this student, it would continue on until every single student went and it wouldn't stop no matter how much, how many times the student begged. These general meetings happened almost every day and often they happened multiple times per day. One question you might be asking yourself is how can this place call themselves a school? Because so far I've heard nothing about learning, nothing about classes. Don't worry, there were classes. The school classes at Elan ran from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. Students were given work with no direction and then required to grade themselves. Class involved a staff member supervising the students, and I just want you to put yourself there for a second. You have gone a full day of repetitive menial tasks, cleaning, chores, verbal abuse, pressure, and punishment. Now, starting at 7 p.m. after this long day, you have to go to a classroom for four hours and do mindless work out of a textbook or a workbook late into the night. Would you be tired? I know I would be exhausted and many of the students found themselves in that position. 
Another part of the school were meal times, and meal times they were only given like five to eight minutes to eat meals. So it was essentially rushing to where the food was, scarfing it down, because remember, one of the rules was eating outside of mealtime would result in punishment. So these students had to just shovel food down their throats whenever mealtimes were during the day. And so by the time they got to school, they are on this unhealthy, just wave of quick eating, bad mental health, and sleep exhaustion because Joe knew that sleep deprivation can make it easier for uh, people to be controlled, for people to be manipulated, and that was the point of having these classes from 7 to 11 p.m. After the long day of chores, yelling, and school, the students would then go back to their living quarters, which were actually quite nice and luxurious. Just kidding, the rooms were bare, they were military-like bunk bed quarters where there would be students assigned to stand into the rooms and watch people throughout the night to ensure they didn't escape, and these students would shine flashlights on students to make sure that they were actually sleeping. So how are you even sleeping if if a flashlight is being shown on you in the night? That just also is showing that there was no privacy at all. There were students assigned to watch students sleep so that they couldn't run away. There was no privacy. The general meeting, even though it was called by a staff member, it was all students who participated in it. And even though the majority of punishment was carried out by students, Unfortunately, there were punishments carried out by staff members. There are reports of female students who have come forward and alleged that they were sexually assaulted, raped, or molested by staff members of the Elan School. There are incidents of Joe allegedly promoting and facilitating sexual abuse. Quote, A former resident by the name of Stephen recalled an incident in which he said Joe locked two teenage girls in a room with two boys who had criminal records for rape. Joe told the boys to, quote, do what you want, end quote, with the girls who were then violently sexually assaulted. The same residents claimed the girls were forced to stay in the locked room with their assailants for several weeks, enduring repeated abuse again and again, end quote. This place clearly was set up to make Joe rich. It was not set up with the interest of students in mind. And I can't even imagine being a student there. You were essentially kidnapped, taken to the school. You are in horrible living conditions and are going through these horrible things on a daily basis. But unfortunately, what we've talked about wasn't the worst part. There was something that would leave a bigger impact on students in a more permanent way, something called the ring. The ring was the highest level of punishment at the Elan school. How the ring worked was there was a student who would be designated as a bully, and the bully was the student who was being punished. This person, the bully, would be given boxing gloves and a boxing helmet kind of thing, like the foam helmet that you slip on your head. So they were given the gloves and the helmet and all of the rest of the students would surround the student and start to yell at them, degrade them, and shout horrible things, kind of like what we talked about with the general meeting. 
This was different though, because then the bully would have various students come up and be forced to fist fight them in front of everyone else. The fighting never stopped for the bully, so there were no breaks, but if the person fighting the bully got tired, they could just step out and another student would step in. When the bully fell to the ground, students would pick up the bully and hold him up or her up, because it was boys and girls at the school, would hold the bully up so other kids could continue to beat, punch, and kick and just be violent to the bully. If students refused to participate in beating up the bully, those students would then become punished and oftentimes they would become the bully. This punishment was open to everyone, boys, girls, and reportedly even girls who were pregnant. This form of punishment, the ring, it was violent, it was horrible, and unfortunately it took the life of a 15-year-old named Phil Williams. Phil Williams, he died in 1982. Just so you remember, the school was founded in 1970, so this was still going on in the 80s. Phil's family was told that Phil had died of a brain aneurysm, and no charges were filed against the school or the administrators. His family only learned of what actually happened in 2016 when a former Elan student tracked Phil's sister down and told her what actually happened. You might be asking yourself, how can all of this be taking place? The abuse, how can this place call themselves a school? How, how is this all possible? The answer is simple. All of it was legal. It was horrible, it was cruel, but it was legal. There were no laws that regulated these types of facilities, so basically they had free reign in whatever they chose to do. Even though it wasn't technically illegal, reports started coming out about what was happening at the school, and the state of Maine, some state officials came to investigate. Depending on the source you read, state officials came either 11 or 12 separate times, but they reportedly found nothing and a lawn was allowed to remain open. Another unfortunate thing was this school was getting media attention, which was good because it had the possibility of shedding light on the abuse that was happening, but Joe was able to convince media that what was happening at the school was good, and the reports from the different news media, they never actually conveyed the um, intensity of the abuse, what was actually happening, and in one report, it was, they were called, quote, practitioners of a revolutionary new type of therapy that could steer troubled teens back onto the right path, end quote. Joe also allegedly paid juvenile court judges to send the kids to the school instead of correctional centers to help promote the school, to help increase the student population. And even though Joe had said escape is impossible, Students continued to try, and while most were unsuccessful, there were three who managed to escape. There was a 16-year-old known as John Doe, a 15-year-old named Brad Glickman, and a 17-year-old girl named Dawn Birnbaum. John Doe, this unidentified student, uh, I'm assuming it's a he because John Doe instead of Jane Doe, but John Doe apparently ran over 16 miles in the wilderness that night until he found a road. He was then found by an officer while hiding out in an apartment complex, and the officer knew that he was supposed to return the student to the Elan school, but the officer saw the bruises on the kid, 
saw the fear in the student's eyes and possibly heard what was going on at the school. And so the officer, instead of taking the student back, he drove the boy to a truck stop so he could hitchhike back home. Brad, the 15-year-old, he escaped. He found a home in Maine and like ran away to a home and he was shot and killed. There are different reports about why he was shot and killed. There are some that say he died in a street fight. There are some that say that the home he went to, the homeowner shot him. But either way, he was shot and killed after escaping. Lastly, Dawn, the 17-year-old girl who escaped, she ran away and found a trucker to hitchhike with who said that he was going to take her to Mississippi where she thought her boyfriend was. The trucker's name was James Robert Cruz, and he unfortunately sexually assaulted, raped, and strangled Dawn to death. He threw her body to the side of the highway and just, like, left her there. Dawn's body was found, and because it crossed state lines, uh, she ran away in Maine, but her body was found in Pennsylvania, the FBI became involved. James Cruz, the truck driver, he was eventually caught for the murder, and of course, this brought attention to the school, because if this school was supposed to be helping kids, if it was supposed to be really good, why were these students running away, and how can this school explain why this 17-year-old girl was raped, murdered, and her body was left in a ditch in the snow. At this point in the story, we know what happens at a lawn school. We've talked about students who have escaped, and now we're going to take a complete 180 turn because this case connects to a family that I just talked about in a different episode, the Kennedys. On October 30th in 1975, a girl named Martha Moxley was murdered in Greenwich, Connecticut. She had gone out with her friends on Mischief Night, which is the night before Halloween where teens would cause trouble around town, and Martha's body was found the following morning in her backyard. Martha, she had been murdered with a golf club, and there was evidence of sexual assault. The main suspect was a boy named Thomas Skakel. He was the last person to see her alive. He wasn't charged, and eventually the case went cold. In 1978, Thomas's brother, who is named Michael, was sent to the Elan School for drunk driving, and while he was at the Elan School, he apparently bragged about killing Martha Moxley. Even though Michael had gone to the Elan School in 1978, it wouldn't be until the year 2000 that Michael was arrested. This case gained national attention for numerous reasons, but one of the big reasons it gained national attention was because Michael was a nephew of Robert F. Kennedy. The case of Martha Moxley was brought to trial, and a lot of his former Elan school classmates testified, which of course was bringing to light in a very public way what was actually happening at the school. The ring was described, Uh, Michael said that he had tried to run away twice and was beaten, horrible stuff like that, and this case really started to show the world what was happening at Elan in a way that wasn't filtered as it had been before. And yes, I say happening because this case went to trial in 2000 and the Elan school was still being operated, and was functional. In response to all of this, Joe came to Michael's defense, and he was saying that Michael never said that, that these were lies, stuff like that. And basically what Joe was trying to do is he was trying to discredit the witnesses and to make it seem like everything was a lie, including the abuse. 
Michael was eventually sentenced to 20 years in prison for the murder. However, his sentence was vacated in 2018. And in October of 2020, the state of Connecticut announced that it would not retry Michael for Martha Moxley's murder. So that is one major step in how all of this started to come to light. And shortly after the trial, Joe got sick. He got lung cancer and he was sick for about seven months and he died of lung cancer. Goodbye, Joe. The school then went to his wife named Sharon Terry in 2001. This court case really started the eventual downfall of the Elan school, and she had a lot of work to do to try and save the reputation of the school, so she was like, you know what, I'm going to make some changes. We're going to get rid of the ring, which is good, but she kept general meetings in place, she kept corporal punishment in place, and she kept all of the other horrible abusive practices that took place at the Elan school. Despite these changes, it wasn't working out for Sharon. She was still getting um, a lot of negative press. The perception of the school was changing. And in 2007, the New York State Education Department finally withdrew their funding from there. Yes, that's correct. The New York State Education Department was funding the school, like not completely, but sending funding to the school. And at one point, paid tuition for special education students to go there. The final twist of the knife for the school and really the main reason why Elon's downfall took place was a little website called Reddit. Reddit was founded in 2005 and after this it allowed many people to connect and a lot of the students who had gone through Elon started posting about their experiences. They were connecting online, they were sharing their stories, sharing how Elon negatively impacted them. More and more first-hand accounts were coming out about Elon's school and the more and more uh, student testimonials came out, the less and less students started to attend. Enrollment was going down, but despite the controversy, the state of Maine renewed the accreditation for the Elon School in 2011. Yes, the Elon School was still open in 2011. The accreditation was, uh, was supposed to last for three years until 2014, However, not long after the school was reaccredited, the school closed down. Sharon Terry, Joe's wife, said that, quote, The school has been the target of harsh and false attacks spread over the internet with the avowed purpose of forcing the school to close. We have been vindicated numerous times, but the school has, unfortunately, been unable to survive the damage. End quote. Even though the school is now closed, the impact, the effect of the Elan school still lasts to this day. Many people who went through the school, they suffer from anxiety, panic attacks, social issues, and just overall mental trauma. It's reported that 39 students who went to the school have committed suicide since 1975. The worst part of all of this, in my opinion, and that is not in any way to degrade or diminish the harm that the students have felt. But in my opinion, the worst part is that no one has been held accountable for this. No staff, no teacher, no administrator of the Elan School has ever faced any charges for anything that happened there. 
Despite the horrible uh, experiences of many students, there are some students that say that they benefited from what happened at the Elan School. Some people say it helped them get down the right path, it helped turn their life around, and it helped made them realize what they were doing was wrong. Even though those stories are out there and people do feel like the Elan School helped them, and they defended what Joe had set up, it seems like the bad stories outnumber the good by many. And on that note, that concludes Expensive Abuse, The Elan School. This story was really hard to research, not necessarily because it was hard to find information. There are a lot of good sources out there. There are a lot of firsthand accounts that you can read of the experiences. Some of them are quite graphic, and it's Even though they are hard to read, it's important to acknowledge that people who are sharing their stories are brave, and I'm sure it takes a lot to share a story like that, so it's, you you gotta be thankful for people sharing their story, and also, you have to be thankful for it because that's the reason why this whole thing eventually came crumbling to the ground. The reason why it was hard to research was just, it was so hard to read about that for over 40 years, in the United States, from 1970 to 2011, there was a quote-unquote school that was essentially a place where kids abused other kids supervised by adults. The adults abused kids, sexually assaulted, raped them, according to reports of some students, and state agencies couldn't find anything wrong. The state agencies sent money to this place. The state agencies sent special education students to this place, and no one has been held accountable. That's why it was hard to research. Okay, so on that note, I am going to do the personal scandal that someone sent in. It has to do uh, with family stuff, which is always fun. This person said, My great-grandmother lied to a priest at 16 about her age and got married to my great-grandfather. She literally skipped class to go get married and had my great-grandfather and his friend pick her up. He was in the military, so I think he was in his early 20s. They moved across the country after that, and my great-grandmother wasn't even able to make a full minimum wage due to her being a minor. All of this was during World War II, and it's not a huge family secret within my family, but we don't talk about it much. Thanks for sending that in. That is super interesting, especially that your mother lied, or your great-grandmother lied to get married underage. I think that was way more common back then, but still kind of a little scandalous. So thanks for sending that in. And it's kind of a nice, uh, I don't I don't know if lighthearted is the right word, but after a pretty heavy episode, that's kind of a lighter scandal to end on. So thank you for sending that in. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, even though it was a lot. I am going to post photos related to this case on social media, on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.Podbean.com, where you can find the show notes, and the show notes are also linked in the uh, episode description. And if you have your own personal scandal that you want read on the podcast, please send that to Scandal101Podcast at gmail.com. That's all I've got. Marshall is taking a nap right beside me on the bed. So I am going to go brush him because he's an all white cat and he sheds like crazy. So with that, thanks so much for tuning in. And this has been episode 48 of Scandal 101.